you know, some of the things we did around Christmas, my mother, my father and I, we would go down. And I remember the first Christmas, almost a year later, we went down to one of the beaches close to where his boat went down and we just had kind of tea and sandwiches. You know, this was on Christmas Day. It's like you don't have anywhere to go, so this is where we went. And my father was still kind of looking on the beach and just looking for stuff, you know. Um, I knew he was looking for Jar, and I think he will always be looking for Jar. Welcome to Shapes of Grief. I'm delighted this week to be joined by my friend Helen Bowen. Helen, you're so welcome. Thank you, Liz. It's really lovely to be here. This is a conversation that I've been waiting to have with Helen since I launched Shapes of Grief podcast last January. Helen is one of the people who would have sprung to my mind when I was thinking about doing a grief podcast um, as somebody that I know who's had a significant traumatic bereavement. Helen's bereavement is one of the reasons that I started Shapes of Grief to get people's stories out there in the world because so many people are so isolated in their grief. We don't talk about it enough. We don't ask about each other's grief enough. We don't know how to support each other a lot of the time. And I would have seen this over the years. I would have known of Helen's bereavement, yet never asked her about it mm. myself. So, Helen, I'm really glad that you're here and that finally we'll get a chance to talk about your brother, Jer. Yeah. 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 So, Helen, going back to January the 11th, 2007, mm -hmm. will you take us through that day as you remember it? Yeah. Um, well, that day was just a normal day. I had heard about the night before the one of the fishing boats, the Pair Charles, having sunk down off um, Dunmore East and kind of what, what I was thinking at that time was that you know Ger wouldn't be fishing he wouldn't be down in that area and you know it's something that I would often think about when he'd be out fishing you know would he be safe and is it okay and that night I just that day hearing about what had happened the other boat it was like yeah I know Ger is okay it's fine. So would you tell us just uh, what happened that other boat for listeners who yeah well, the Pair Charles um, was another vessel that sunk within hours of Jer's boat. It was coming into the harbour um, and the another boat uh, that it was paired with, uh, lost. they lost contact with that boat. And what happened was the boat sunk and all they, they didn't find any, any of the people. Nobody survived. That. And there were five crew on board. Yeah, and it was starting, you know, five crew on board. Um, the skipper would have been around the same age as Jer. And it was, you know, it was making the headlines, big story in the news. And, you know, I was none the wiser that at that time, Jer's boat was after sinking, just within a few hours of the Pair Charles going down. Yeah. So you were listening to news of this tragedy in... 
I think it was off Waterford or Wexford. That's right, Waterford. Yeah. Um, unbeknownst to you, your brother was in similar trouble. Mm-hmm. As the news of the first boat was coming in, Yeah. your brother was going through yeah. horror. Yeah, absolutely. So what, what do you know about what happened? Um, well, what came out um, in the inquest a year later was that the boat had been hit by a massive wave. Um, this was like something like 1 a.m. in the morning in a really big storm. Jer was, well, Jer was downstairs getting sleep and there was another guy taking charge of the boat. You know, there was this big, loud bang and Jer went upstairs to take over and, you know, started calling for help. The Mayday call um, on the radio. And while the other, uh, there was three other crew on his boat and he would have told them to get the life rafts and two of the life rafts were inflated and, you know, they'd go into the sea and two men, two of the other fishermen made it to the life rafts and one other man almost did. Um, But he also had a, like a life ring around him from the boat. And he got pulled down and the boat went down. It was attached. See, the lifeboat was attached to the boat. So when the boat went down, he got pulled down with that. Jer never left the wheelhouse. He stayed calling for help on the radio. Next thing, it's like the glass was blown in and just, you know, the boats just sank within three minutes of, of it being hit by the wave. So the two, there was two survivors on my brother's boat, luckily enough. Two out of four. Two out of four, yeah. And they, they were adrift in their little life raft for like 18 hours. And there was a search on at that stage then for my, my brother on my brother's boat because my brother's friend was, who would have been out fishing with him had been trying to make contact with him and he couldn't contact him and this is something like after 12 hours so then they kind of put out their own call alerting the emergency services so the uh, search and rescue helicopter was out looking for for them and just at the last minute when they're on their way to turn back they saw a flare going up from from the boat from the life raft sorry and um, they they found the two men in the boat and they brought, brought them to Waterford Hospital and they were able to give us the details that I'm now giving you, yeah. you know, about what happened. So when those men were found in the boat, how many hours at that point were you aware that your brother was missing? OK, so I knew that they had been found. I'll just fill you in maybe on what I was actually doing when I I heard the news. So I was training to be a psychotherapist at the time and I was in college that evening. And at the end of class, there was just a message on my phone to phone home. And I've never got a message like that. So I knew something was wrong. And and somebody, I think it was my aunt, answered the phone and she just told me very briefly what had happened. And... um, so like the very first thing that happened to me when I heard that was that I stopped breathing and I started hyperventilating because it was, you know, if you think it's such a massive amount of information for my psyche, for my nervous system, for the whole of me to take in that it's just one of those overwhelming events. And um, lucky for me, I was in a room full of psychotherapists in training and the teacher there just 
you know, helped me manage my state. And um, so then I got a lift back to Kinsale and uh, went down to the pierhead in Kinsale where Jar's boat would be coming, where he would have fished out of. And I met his wife and uh, she just said, don't say anything because she couldn't cope and didn't want me to say anything that would make it worse for her. And um, so during that time, that evening, I also knew somebody who was working in the Navy. And I phoned him up and I said, because the Navy had been out as well, searching for Jer's boat. Um, and I, I was just looking for more information. And I asked, did he know anything else? And he told me that there was two life rafts after being found, one with the two survivors in it and another one that was empty. And I knew, I just knew in that moment that Jer was gone. Yeah. And did you know Helen with all of you? Or was there a part of you still holding on to hope that somehow there'd be another explanation? You know, I really think that I knew because a lot of the my family were say in some kind of denial or living in that hope but for me it was I don't know just something inside me it was like Jer, Jer is gone you know that he won't he won't be coming back that he wouldn't be coming back alive I knew the you know the storm it was a really really bad storm and I I don't know it you know I didn't hold out hope you know I held out hope that we would find his body because they were they were diving on the boat when they they found the boat two weeks later, because I don't know if you know about any uh, fishing vessel or sailing vessel that they have what's called an EPIRB, and when that when the boat uh, goes under sea level at a certain point, this EPIRB will give a signal to a satellite dish to say it's in distress, something is wrong, and the, it will give the location of the vessel. But Jer's EPIRB that he had on his boat didn't go off. So they had no idea where the boat was. So if you could imagine, they're searching a vast, vast area of sea. Post a raging storm. Yeah. And a lot of the time they couldn't go out because of the condition of the sea. They, you know, it was just too rough. Um, but they eventually found it after two weeks. And I remember that, you know, waiting to hear back every day you know when they were diving on the boat on the days that they could get out you know whether they had found anything and obviously they, they didn't find anything you know we never Jer never came home we never got his body and nor the other man as well Thomas Thomas Yagla Thomas Yagla yeah. yeah 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 so those two weeks were they consumed with finding Jer Hi everyone, excuse this brief interruption. It's Liz here and I wanted to tell you about my grief training program. If you are interested in becoming grief literate or grief trained, I've designed a comprehensive online program which you can do at your own pace in your own time. It's been designed primarily for healthcare providers, but we all have a right to grief training and education. So if you're interested, then it's for you too. Sign up today at shapesofgrief.com. Now, back to the podcast. Or were they consumed with grief or both? Uh-huh. Tell me a little yeah. bit about what was the primary emotion because we know the importance of having a body for mm. so many people. Mm. Uh-huh. That can become the only thing that matters in some cases. Was that true for you? 
It was, but it wouldn't have been, you know, it wasn't the overriding thing. It was like this was a, um, such a traumatic event and it was the the media, there was a huge media involvement and that was kind of really bizarre for me and in another way helpful. Okay. Um, it helped kind of bring home the reality of what was happening because... I think, you know, when something like that happens, when when that happened to me, it was like the shock and just f- f- being completely disorientated, you know, um, not really knowing what was going on and just going with, you know, what was happening. It was like, you know, everything was really, really busy. The, the house was full. Um, you know, we had regular contact with the Navy, with the Garda divers, um there was the media phoning up um it was just a really intense busy time so the the world was reflecting your interior landscape which doesn't happen for a lot of people absolutely you know yeah i lose somebody that i love i'm grieving everyone else is getting about their daily business yeah but in this case it was being reported there were people talking about it everyone was standing at the Mm -hmm. end of the pier yeah 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 yeah, like I, I have a few very vivid memories of that time. And one of them is, you know, kind of driving across um, the Christie Ring Bridge in the Opera House and they sell the Evening Echo there. There'd be guys standing there selling the, you know, those newspaper, newspapers. And, you know, he's my, my brother's photograph is on the front page and it's like that's very, very confronting. It's very, it makes it very, very real. So, you know, when I say that it was helpful in that way, it was. Because if that wasn't happening, it would be like Jared's just gone and we have no idea, you know, about anything. So it's like this constant repetition of the facts helped you to come out of the shock of it Mm -hmm. and process it and somehow accept the reality of it, I suppose. Yeah, and I, you know, also, you know, because I was training as a psychotherapist, I had some kind of skill and knowledge under my belt Let's say to, you know, that I knew that it was really good to get support, to get help and to talk about it because I was in this, uh, you know, this situation where it's my brother and I felt my mother, my father and his wife and his children kind of took precedence over me, which is, you know, which I think is just the way things work out in families. So I felt I have a lot of support around me. I have... I was a member of two different communities and these two, you know, kind of conscious communities where I could go and just really be myself. And sometimes that would be just going in, sitting down and crying. So having your grief honoured without someone going, how are your parents and stepping right over you? Yeah, absolutely. Which often happens with sibling bereavement. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So Mm. it was, you know, when I look back on that time, it's like I'm, those are the things that I'm really grateful for, that I was able to plug into that support and those communities that were really okay with me being however way I was, you know, on any day. And, you know, some days I could be laughing and smiling. Other days I'm just numb, crying my eyes out or, you know, swearing blindly at God, you know, saying, why, why Jar? you know, that was a big yeah. question for a while, why Jar? And I'm curious, I mean, there must have been so many different phases to this first of all it's the knowing he's missing Mm. then it's the finding the other two men 
and the empty raft in a sense that he's not coming back. Yeah. Then it's looking for the boat. Then it's finding the boat and looking for his body. Absolutely. I mean, we know there's no such thing as closure and grief. Mm-hmm. But was there any sort of end to this story? Or did it just linger? You know, this the story of the loss. Or did it just keep going in the months? Was it still in the newspaper? Was it still being reported? Were they still looking for the two fishermen long um, after the event? Well, they, they searched... Um, I think to date it's actually the longest search in in Ireland around, you know, usually there's a, uh, like a timeline and I think it's around two weeks, it could be two weeks to a month where like, the, you know, the emergency services will be engaged or the Navy will be out looking for, it's either a, a recovery uh, mission or, um, or a rescue mission and, it, you know, it was a rescue mission first and then it turned into a recovery can we recover the bodies and it went like it for me i feel that i'm at peace with it even though i can touch into the grief i really think that that's normal that i would feel the loss of jur but i'm not i i feel that i have um yeah at peace i won't as you say the word closure it's it's not a word i agree with anyway in relation to grief um it's good for doors you know i lost my mum um five years ago and you know we buried her and uh we have parts of jer's boat and his son buried um some of the boat with her and that you know that was very significant in a way we don't have like say the grave to go to for jer but for me that that symbolism is really, really important. Vital. So there's so much I want to ask you mm-hmm. about this, Helen, and it's yeah. it's um, really bringing to mind the story of Dara Fitzpatrick as well, and, well, you know, yeah, and the similarities there. Well, the really interesting thing is uh, Dara w- would have been out looking for Jur in, <sighs> you know, the one Rescue 117. That was, you know, her, her helicopter. So I was in touch with her sister, um, when when that happened and you know her sister had heard about me through Dara or heard about Jar because Dara would have been out looking and they, it was very very similar in lots of ways you know which sister is it Neve? Uh, Neve yes uh-huh. yeah yeah and I just wanted to reach out to her because well I felt you know this is people there are not many people who know this type of grief when you know Okay, they got her body, her body almost immediately, but the whole media attention and you know sometimes how cruel the media can be, um, and how they were out looking for the other you know the other pilots and the helicopter and two of those haven't been found. There was just so many similarities, yeah. and yeah, so I just you know just reached out to her and said you know I know some of what you're going through. And we've, you know, we've had kind of text conversations and stuff since then. But, yeah. It's a whole other class of grief, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, I mean, just the trauma, Mm -hmm. the traumatic aspect of it. And it is absolutely a traumatic grief. Yeah, yeah. Would you talk a little bit about that, Helen? You started off by saying when you found out, Mm -hmm. you stopped breathing. Yes. And I heard somebody else describe that sensation as well as one of the sisters of Jacinta's smile. Mm. Um, there are three siblings who have lost three siblings. Okay. 
and she talks about how she stopped breathing Mm. and yeah and she has to remember to breathe you know if she gets anxious she has to remember to breathe Mm -hmm. would you speak a little bit about the trauma and how you managed that at the time or how you've had to learn to manage it yeah over the years Uh whichever is more appropriate for you yeah well I definitely over the you know last few years I, I know a lot more about trauma now than I did back then and I know just say during that time I would say the month following that where you know it was really really intense and you know we would have been out searching for Jer along the beaches just as something to, to to do rather than sit at home and wait for news. But I would say the when I think about what I did to help me through that really, really intense time where there was just these really overwhelming feelings and sensations in my body that I couldn't sit still. You know, I just actually couldn't sit still. So I walked and I walked and I walked and I talked and I talked and I talked. And... Um, like I said a while ago, I had lots of places where I could go and talk and just be, but I would be out walking the roads. So just. you moved it and you expressed it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I was also, and I am still a member of like a conscious dance community. So, you know, I was able to go in there. I wouldn't say that I necessarily moved it in there because I was still, it was too overwhelming for me to come into contact with it but you know, it was yeah it was uh, yeah. consuming you you didn't have to find it yeah and yeah you know in terms of the trauma as well you know I was plagued for a long time um about and I know that this is a symptom of um, PTSD where the intrusive images you know where I would think about Jer being you know just dying and being in the and calling for help I guess you know his vulnerability and it I was tortured with it for ages and I remember speaking to a woman at the time and she said just a really really simple thing that just settled it for me and she said that Jer just went through that for a very short space of time and he isn't experiencing it now that he's at peace now and maybe part of my logical mind would have known that, but to have somebody else say that to me in such a compassionate way, it was like I didn't have those intrusive thoughts mm. anymore. After it's that. almost somebody offered you an alternative. Exactly. Here's an alternative you could swap that out with. Yeah. 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 Helen, back to the whole idea of, um, back to the subject of not having a body mm. to bury. How significant was that for you, do you think, not having, not being able to bring Jer's body home? Yeah, um, you know, at the time I didn't have another kind of loss to compare it to. So, and you know, there was a lot of talk about you don't have a body and it'll be so hard and you won't get closure and people would be saying all of these kind of things and um, I really didn't know what that meant. Um, I would say until my mother passed away and when, you know, we went through the rituals and the ritual of actually burying her in the ground. Um, and, you know, that was so completely final for me. I really understood what it meant to have a body. So how I how I manage that now or what I've come to believe is that, you know, that Jer is buried at sea and I go down to where his boat sank sometimes um, 
it's down uh, just um, not far from Yall. Uh, Ardmore, there's a headland there and his boat went down and I just go down and I walk and mm. I, I say my prayers and I talk to him. I talk to him all the time anyway because I don't believe he's, I believe he's around. I, in fact, I know he is around. So that, you know, in terms of not having a body, it, I know that for my mother it, and my father, it was incredibly difficult for them. And even a year later, you know, some of the things we did around Christmas, my mother, my father and I, we would go down. And I remember the first Christmas, almost a year later, we went down to one of the beaches close to where his boat went down. And we just had kind of tea and sandwiches, you know, this was on Christmas Day. Because it's like you don't have anywhere to go. So this is where we went. And my father was still kind of looking on the beach and just looking <clears throat> for stuff, you know. Um, I knew he was looking for Jar, and I think he will always be looking for Jar. My mother is now, you know, she's not here anymore, so it's different. But um, That's a very poignant image, mm, the grieving father yeah. looking for his son yeah. on the beach. Yeah. Always looking. Yeah. yeah. You said you know Jar is around. How do you know? Mm. It's just, I feel him. I can hear him. I know what his voice sounds like and it's just, you know, he talks to me. He he finds things for me, you know, if I lose things. And I know you've probably heard that before from people, but, you know, I'll ask So your bond continues with him very much. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And this is a really important thing for grieving people to know. And we say it almost every episode that death ends a life, not a relationship. Yeah. And you don't need to move on and get over mm. anybody. Mm. And bring go forward with them in a different kind of relationship, finding that. Yep. Yeah. I Was that easy for you? Did it take time? To to form a new relationship with Jer after he died? I I would say that it you know once I was over, or once I wouldn't want to say over, once I was through that really intense, traumatic grief, that it just changed. Like the, when I miss him, it's like we would have been really, really close when we were young. And that's what comes up. You know, that's what I miss. So it's like it, it just changed the grief changed like at first it was Jer, my brother the physical person is gone and it just over time there was no i wouldn't say there was any specific thing just just over time it yeah developed yeah a different yeah. Sh- a different shape of relationship and yeah. you know i i also have to say in terms of not having the body that there is a part of me waits for Jer to come in the door. And that's the young Helen when I was five or six and he was seven or eight. And that comes up when I'm in my parents' house and my other brother is there and there could be others around at those kind of family events. And it's like somewhere, it's like, I oh, Jer, there's a part of me say, oh, Jer will be in now. And it's like, well, and then the other part, adult me goes, um, well, he won't, you know. So it's like, I think that's an aspect of the no closure or the, mm-hmm. you know, I wonder, you know, if we had, I don't have that with my mom. I'm not expecting her to come in the door. 
So I think that's something um, about the impact of not having a body, but it's with the, it's a younger me. And it really yeah. makes sense. It's like this paradox of, I'm not 100% sure because I haven't seen his dead body. Yes. Yes, I know he's dead. Yeah. And how can your brain accommodate to both of those truths? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, uh, we do talk about the importance for many people of seeing the body mm. because it helps them. It's an essential part of processing the reality of the loss. Yeah. Helen, I want to go back just to a few things. Mm-hmm. We talked about sibling bereavement, and this is something that has come up a few times on the podcast, how siblings are often overlooked. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I'm guessing that at the time, a lot of people might have asked you, how's Mary doing? Mm-hmm. How are the kids doing? How are your parents? Yeah. How were people with acknowledging your grief? You know, this is your sibling who is just two or three years older than you, mm-hmm. who you had spent your entire life with. Yeah. Do you feel your grief was minimized because you were just a sister, just a sibling? Um, I don't know. I, you know... I would certainly say that I made it more, that I made my parents grief and my sister-in-law and my niece and my nephews, I made their grief more important than mine. Primarily because I felt I had lots of support, lots of really, really good support. Um, but other people, it would always be, how's your mum in particular? How, how's your mum? How's your dad? And how's Mary? Um you know, I would say definitely there I didn't get the same acknowledgement. And I don't I think that's, you know, I don't want to say right, but it's I can understand that, you know. Um, but, you know, for people, my close friends and my community and people who knew me, it, you know, it was significant for them. And they kind of, you know, acknowledged me as the sister in that. So yeah. it's like I had my own places. So you yeah. you were you were lucky, I suppose, that you had those two communities mm. that fully supported you and had a sense of what you were going through. Yeah. Um, and for someone else who mightn't be so lucky to maybe bear that in mind, you know, you are entitled to your grief and your place Absolutely. in the family when you lose a sibling. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that you own that. You know, I made my grief smaller mm. or I made their grief more important. Yeah. You know, yeah. A lot of people do that. If there's somebody h- higher up the hierarchy, mm. Mm. they feel, oh, I shouldn't be grieving because it's much worse for them. But, yeah. you know, your grief is your grief. Absolutely. Own yeah. it mm. and um, allow yourself to be consoled and met in that. How did you lay Jer to rest, Helen? Did you have a service for him or a funeral? A month, you know, the month's mind mass was actually on his birthday. Um, he was lost on the 11th of January and his birthday is the 10th of February, was the 10th of February. And my mother's birthday was also the 10th of February. So we had a celebration of his life on that day. Um, it was very similar to a funeral, but we just didn't have the coffin. Everything else took place. So this was the first ritual you had around Jer's yes. death? Yes. Yeah. was a month after mm-hmm. he went missing? Yeah. Yeah. So, it, you know, um, people brought up, there was, you know, the I think it's called the offertory 
procession. People brought up kind of symbols of his life and different people spoke at the mass. I spoke well, I, you know, did one of the readings. So it, it was very, very similar to a funeral. Um, and I guess that was the, the biggest one. We did our own smaller rituals and, you know, acknowledgements over the years. I know that uh, my sister-in-law and my parents and her children went out to um, where his boat went down in a, in a boat and they laid wreaths on that, yeah, on, on the water. I didn't get to do that. And if it's if, if it's okay, I have a beautiful little story to Please. yeah, to, to say um you know, on the day we all went down to this uh restaurant in Kinsale where Ger would have supplied fish to and there was, you know, everybody had a meal and you know, everybody who hadn't been who had been involved in that in that event, you know, the the rescue and the recovery, you know, the Garda divers, they were there and they came up to me and, and shook my hand and they said, I'm really sorry we couldn't find your brother, but he's in a beautiful place that there are whales um, just, I think they, they said, just south of where the boat is, you know, on the seabed. So that was just a beautiful, beautiful image that I was able to take with me and a few years later, about three years ago, I was on um, a somatic experiencing training in the nor in Northern Ireland, and one of the trainers, uh, Linda Stelt, she was working with um, First Nations in Canada, and uh, the First Nations, you know, a lot of them are fishermen. They're they're very very connected to the sea, and one of one of them came in. To her, you know, one of the people that she was working with came in and said, oh, there we go down to the water and we're waiting for, you know, it could have been a brother or a son to come home and there's no, because he had gone out fishing and there was no sign. And, you know, so week by week she would get these reports, you know, waiting for news on the, this fisherman who was lost and um they found the next time she reported it to Linda was that they had seen a pod of whales um upriver something like that i can't remember the exact you know the exact story but it, the symbolism in that culture is like that um that we came humans came from whales along like billions of years ago and that when the whale when you see the whales in the water it's a it's a sign that the life has passed on and that they are at peace so she told the story without any knowledge of me having any you know loss she didn't know anything about about that but it was you know it was like my hair stood on end when she said it and it, it just again that was something else that just you know, soothed something in my mm. in my soul and kind of, you know, it was like maybe another piece of, you know, what what happened, but in a very, um, dare I use the word, spiritual way, you know, mm. that this, you know, she's here telling this beautiful story and it, it had such resonance. And it, it gives you it. some meaning mm. in it. The whale that was spotted. Absolutely. You know, suddenly there's a meaning with yes. that. The jar is at peace. Yep. His spirit is at peace and mm -hmm. 
the importance of having meaning. Yeah. Because otherwise it's just a meaningless loss. Mm. And for so many people, when we do lose someone out of the, the cycle of life, if you like, yeah. or untimely or a child, it is often just a meaningless loss. Mm. You know, someone who's had too much to drink or something yeah. that went wrong in a split second cost mm. a life. Meaningless loss. But if somehow along the way we can somehow find meaning mm. and actually as Pauline Boss, you know, who coined ambiguous law says mm. even meaning something being meaningless has a meaning. Yes. You know, yeah, yeah for sure. Um, but it's lovely that you found that mm. correlation or that connection and it gave you a little bit of meaning. Yeah. Um, as to the sighting of that whale. Mm. Mm. How did your grief change you, Helen? How did it change me? I think one of the things is that I I have a very real experience of life and its unpredictability and that anything can happen in a split second. Your whole life can be changed, turned around, blown up in a split second. That I really, really know. And does that cause anxiety or yes. a sense of adventure? Um, both, I would say, yeah. because, you know, when I, my mum passed away suddenly as well. So it was like I, I have two experiences of getting phone calls that kind of shattered my life, yeah. you know. So it's like the imprint of that now is like, you know, if I have more than two missed calls from a family member, I notice the activation in my nervous system. And I, you know, I've said to, say, my father or my brother, my other brother, you know, please leave a message so I know, because I do get yeah. anxious. And, yeah. you know, I, I will go to the worst case scenario um, because that has been my experience. And the plus side of that, it's like life, we don't know how much of life we do have. So, you know, I, I don't take things as seriously things I would have taken in the past you know it's like you know I'm not just not going to worry about that it's not really that important whatever that could be whatever it is yeah you know so I'd say that's one of the positives something that a lot of people would say to me is that their tolerance for frivolity really goes down mm. you know when when someone's you know upset over the handbag they wanted nothing in the shop that they just can't tolerate that have you yes, a similar? For sure. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, I, yeah, it's, you know, uh, God, but without uh, sounding too harsh, but it's like a, you know, a re what is a real problem? You know, the handbag in the shop, not being able to get it. It's like that for me, that isn't a, like, as you say, frivolity, it's not a real problem. So you know, it's... So are you drawn towards a different kind of person since your experience of Jer's death? Um, I, don't, I don't think so because, you know, I've been on, say, this path before Jer passed, kind of, you know, becoming curious and working on my inner life. That drew me to train as a psychotherapist um, and to help people. And so it's like I've had my own story before Jer before Jer died. So it's like I would orient myself towards people who 
like me are interested in you know helping themselves become better people and helping others as well it's like I you know I I can't really or I nor do I want to hang around with people who are just into very different things like the getting the perfect handbag in the shop (laughs) (laughs) one one of the things I remember that like uh, I was in a relationship at the time and the person I was in the relationship with was very very supportive and he too would have been you know self-reflective um and interested in you know his own his own life and and helping himself become a better person uh, he did share uh his birthday with Jer and my mother so it was like three birthdays the 10th of february yes so it was i think his birthday just didn't happen after that i think we stayed together for two years after Jer's death and so I wasn't in a space where I could really help him celebrate or acknowledge mm. it and you know that was okay but it is unusual that those three people would have birthdays on the same day very yeah, yeah mm-hmm. very one would say more than a coincidence yeah yeah Helen since Jer died which is 12 years ago 13 come, come in January. to 13 yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you've you've done your five rhythms training, your open floor teacher training, your somatic experiencing. You finished off your psychotherapy training. Uh-huh. You've done a huge amount of body work, particularly uh, yeah. body psychotherapies. Um, and I assume you've learned a lot about your experience in hindsight. Uh-huh. Um, what would you do differently or would you do anything differently knowing what you know now about the body and grief in the body and how grief can manifest in the body. Yeah. You know, I have to say, I I don't think I would do anything differently because I was involved in, you know, Five Rhythms Movement Practice. I had done another training, uh, well, within a year of Jer's death, um, like a movement therapy training that included the body. So I think, you know, that I was working with my body through that experience also would have, I, I can't think of of anything I would have done differently, really. And you um, say you walked and you talked. Yeah. I know a lot of people who go into paralysis. Mm. You know, we, we often with the trauma, we have the fight, flight or collapse response. Yes. And it sounds like, you know, you found your action, you mm. you walked with it. Yes. Um, so the, that response actually probably helped you. So many people just go into collapse mode. Yeah. What would you say to them? I think, you know, I think for me, I always say it to people is to get help, to talk to somebody like a therapist or somebody in... Um, somebody separate from the bereavement um i think nature uh walking any kind of movement that if you go into the collapsed place also sometimes we just need to go there you know if if we can be in a place in our lives where it's possible to stay in bed for x amount of time because we're i think we live in a society where 
we're expected to kind of get up and get on with it and to get over it and it's just you know the impact of that I think on our bodies and on our psyches is it's just we have to override something and it's just not healthy Mm. and um and there is this expectation that you would be over it oh that was last year or that was a few months ago um but what I would say to people is to is to talk to to be in company sometimes you do really need to be on your own and to be in to be in nature like nature is a huge huge resource um you know to tune out to you know like one of the things I do today if um if I'm feeling a little bit overwhelmed um is that I, I just you know or to you know after a hard day's work is that I'll I'll watch two or three series on Netflix it's just that kind of orienting to something different to what might be happening inside it's it's like a healthy distraction but I think you know the society today where it's really about you know we're given all of these messages about getting up and getting on with it and it's about being strong and it's I think Mm. it's about about allowing yourself to completely fall apart because if you think about it something like that like Jura's death or anybody else any death it's an, an overwhelming event a lot of the time, even when it can be expected, you know, that anticipatory grief that, you know, I think we we need help. We're not, you know, mm. we're not built to be on our own. And it's interesting, you sent me an article, I think, about a year ago, mm. um, and it was... I'm not sure what it was called, but it was around the myth of resilience okay, or yes. the danger of resilience mm. and... You know, resilience is the buzzword. It's the mindfulness of this year. And, you know, resilience is great. Resilience really is great. But there is a time to grieve. There Mm. is a time to hibernate, you know, and a time for self-compassion. Now, self-compassion can be get up and go for a walk in the woods. But it can also be get under the covers, turn Mm. on the electric blanket, let yourself curl up. Yeah. And I think the whole notion of that article, I, I loved it. And maybe I'll link it into this podcast description mm. was we're not allowing ourselves to grieve if we're constantly trying to kick it to the curb or quote unquote, kick, kick the shit out of option B, um, <laughs> you know, which, uh, yeah, I, I don't want to name it. I don't want to put anyone down. But, you know, there is this sort of movement of getting over grief quickly but you deny yourself of such um, an important part of being human and your own humanity when you try to skirt around your grief. Mm. And it, it, it doesn't go away. It goes somewhere in your psyche, in your body, and it, it stays there. And mm. it can change into something else, like mm. an illness or a, a pain in your shoulders. or It doesn't ever go away, you know, yeah. so I think it's so, so important to get the support and to give yourself what mm. you need. So to confront your grief and meet it with compassion. Mm. I wouldn't say, I don't like the word confront. Uh-huh. <laughs> what would you say? Um, to meet it. I think there's a, mm. you know, I think it's very normal to resist and to fight with something that's difficult. And, you know, eventually, well, that, that would be my process anyway. You know, I go into... I don't accept something straight away. There's that process. But it's like kind of meeting it and just being with it and being around other people who can allow it. Because most people, say in today's society, outside of 
psychotherapists or people who aren't, you know, in some kind of, you know, conscious community or working on themselves, like, you know, they find it really, really difficult to be around somebody who is grieving. Um, it's like people don't know what to do or what to say. And it's just being there for somebody, hanging out with somebody, letting them be how they are. You know, instead of... And very hard to do that if you're not able to do it with yourself. Yeah. It's interesting, we're here in Cork in uh, the International Hotel mm. where Christopher Germer is staying. He's giving a conference the next two days, which is why I'm here mm. on mindfulness-based self-compassion. And Fabulous. Christopher is going to come onto the podcast as well to talk about how we can... How meeting our grief with compassion mm. can support us through it. Yeah. Rather than this notion of um, getting on with it, mm. getting over it, mm -hmm. you know, how do we carry it compassionately? Yeah. Mm. And it's it's tricky, you know, because, you know, while we say just meeting your grief and collapsing into it, if necessary, we do also know that walking, moving, yeah. taking some sort of um, action, mm -hmm. whether it be writing or physical action, some sort of movement and some sort of expression can be really helpful. Yeah. So all these mixed messages, you know, well, it's I all about balance, isn't mm, it? Well, I think it's all of those things. It is. You know, it is. Um, the, for me, it was certainly that, that there would be days I would just, I didn't want to see anybody. I was so overcome with grief. I would just go into bed. I couldn't read that, fo you know, I couldn't focus. So it just going into bed and lying under the covers or having some music playing that I liked or just silence, you know, or else it would be out walking and or else going to my therapist or going to my friends or going to dance, any of those things. Yeah. Yeah. And you, Helen, you have a little girl now on yourself. Mm. Is she eight or nine? She's eight. She's be eight. nine in June. Okay. Yeah. Does she know Jer? She does through me and she often talks about him and uh, you know how much she would have liked to have met him and you know if she's meeting new people she will always talk about Jer you know being her uncle and, and what happened so she knows what happened it was you know I, I would never keep anything like that from her yeah so he's part of her history yeah how important is it Helen do you think for people to tell their story of grief I'm just thinking Jer died 12 years ago mm -hmm. and coming here tonight you said you were really anxious mm. and had been you know activated during the day thinking about it yeah how important is it to tell that story to share it for people to know what it's been like for you I think it's vital it's you know it really really is um because it, it's part of me and it's part of anybody who has experienced a loss and there's something about telling the story um, that honours you and what you have gone through and also honours the person who, who has passed away. And I think it's also about, you know, speaking almost the unspoken as well. That, you know, like I was saying a while ago that, you know, usually we're not we live in a society where it's about being positive you know this false positivity and you know getting over it and oh sure that happened 12 years ago you shouldn't be feeling anything now and 
it's I think the the more you tell your story, the the better it is for you and the better it is for society really to hear these stories because you know these are people who have lived and who have made uh, huge imprints on our lives and mm. you know it's it's honoring them as well. What's your overriding feeling now as you tell me your story, Helen and look back on the previous 12 years? Um, it's, it's definitely one of gratitude and, you know, gratitude that I can sit here and talk to you about this and that, you know, the incredible support network that I had at the time and re that, that helped me get through. I don't know how or where I would be today if I wasn't allowed to just be how I was and to go through all of those really, really diff difficult emotions at the time. And, you know, I'm also really grateful that I had, that I was somehow on that pathway. And that, so that, that I, some part of me had chosen a pathway and I was able to access that support. Um, and when you say a pathway, the psychotherapeutic community, yeah. the conscious dance community. Yeah, all of that. People who were going beneath the surface a little mm. bit anyway. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I remember it well. I remember it well on the news, mm. the news of the pair Charles, and then within twenty four hours, the Honeydew too. Yeah, and the tragedy that it was, mm. and the media frenzy that it was. Yeah, yeah. Um, and underneath all of that, there's a family, there's parents who've lost children, mm. wives who've lost husbands, sisters who've lost brothers, brothers who've lost brothers, children yeah. who've lost parents. Yeah. And their story goes on today, mm. you know. Yeah. So just really, I suppose, I'd love to just dedicate this episode to all the families. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Who lost a loved one in the Honeydew too, and in the Pear Charles. Yeah. Twelve yeah. years ago. Mm. Yeah. Thank you, Liz. Thanks, Liz. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. for listening to this episode of Shapes of Grief. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical or psychological advice and if your grief is making you unwell please do go to your healthcare provider. Grief is a normal part of being human. You're not alone. Once again please do consider becoming a patron of Shapes of Grief on patreon.com. This is a listener supported podcast and we rely on your support to keep us going. The music was written by Silly Wizard and performed by Sue Hart and Martin Craddock, especially for the Shapes of Grief podcast. Until the next time, from me, Liz Gleeson, stay well and take very good care. On a storm-torn shoreline, a woman was standing. It's fish.
Go!